Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcasts. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. Can you imagine going into your first ever marathon with no race plan, no experience, and a good but mostly non-specific training regime? Well, that's exactly how Australian running legend Steve Monaghetti began his marathon career at the 1986 Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh, Scotland. The result? A bronze medal, and probably nobody more surprised than Steve himself. Steve began running almost by accident on a random invitation from one of his neighbors to take part in a youth cross-country race. That seemingly inauspicious invitation was the spark for a career that spanned from the 1985 World Cross Country Championships through the 2000 Olympic Marathon. In that time of rapid and dramatic shifts in information and opinions about the sport of running, Steve was notable for his steady results and faith in himself, his coach, and his program. Throughout his entire running life, which continues to this day, Steve has, first and foremost, maintained his love of the simple act of running. He shares with us his belief that the mistake that many make is simply making running too complicated. A few things that Steve and I discussed included Steve's background in running and the training program that took him to the top of the running world, the specifics of the workout known around the world as the Mona Fartlek, how it came to be and how it is still used to this day, how Steve dealt with the many and varied innovations and shifting opinions that were introduced to the sport during his career, And finally, Steve's opinion on the current state of running as a sport and how he thinks it can be improved. We'd like to thank Steve for his time and wish him the very best of luck in future coaching and running endeavors. We'd also like to thank Heidi Bush for giving us a suggestion to ask the question. So, Steve, thanks so much for being on the show today. Can you start by telling us a bit about your background and how you started running? Sure. Steve Monaghetti. I was born and bred and still living in Ballarat, Victoria, Australia, and I wasn't uh, that great at sport when I was a kid, but happened to have a next-door neighbour that lived in the suburb that I lived in who knocked on the door and invited me out to a local cross-country race as a young 14-year-old, just about to turn 14-year-old athlete. And out I went and had a run in over a 3K cross-country course and ran pretty well, really enjoyed it, and I've been running ever since. So here we are 38 years later. That was where it all started. and. Really, it wasn't that I was seen to be born to run or successful. It was just that I enjoyed that environment. And cross-country running and club athletics here in Ballarat and in Victoria and Australia is pretty strong. So there was a pretty good social group. And I just have continued to be involved in that um, scene, which has been obviously important to my development. And then how did you progress from a 14-year-old just trying out cross-country running for the first time to the runner you would turn out to be a few years later? Yeah, so through that club system, there was a group of us, and um, we'd sort of all catch up and train. And then at school, when I was in year nine, so when I was about 16, my English teacher happened to be a guy called Tony Benson, who's well-known here in Ballarat. He um, he had a pretty um, well-known record, and uh, he was my English teacher and invited me out to do some training with him. And... He said, he said, I suppose, effectively my first coach. So that formulated my running training a bit more and sort of took off from there and I started winning 
Victorian Championships as an under 17 year old and then I won my first national championship as an under 20 year old at the National Cross Country in Hobart and transitioned into senior ranks pretty smoothly and the longer the distance went the better I seemed to get so it happened sort of pretty smoothly for me going from juniors to seniors just longer races didn't affect me. Which is kind of uh, the way a lot of athletes go. So how did you yeah, get yeah, how did you get connected with your with your coach Chris Wardlaw, who you worked with for most of your senior career? Yeah, and we I still call him my coach now, even though I've been retired for fourteen years. And he's sort of I think we agree. I'm he's my lifelong coach. I'm his lifelong athlete. And um, yeah, he I was I had a bad run at the uh, World Cross Country Selection Trials in 1983, and I was sitting on a Beach feeling sorry for myself, and a, a, a guy who'd also ran in that event said, "Oh, you sound like you're a bit a bit disillusioned with your coach. Why don't you have a chat to Chris Wardlaw? He's pretty good." And um, so I did. I caught up with him, and the rest is history. He uh, he gave me my first official running diary, and I started keeping a diary, and we formed a relationship that obviously you know stood the test of time and saw me go from a pretty disillusioned 21 year old up to being one of the best marathon runners in the world and he actually got me back on the track some of the things he did I, I was always a really good cross-country runner but I was kind of fast-tracking my career into marathons and half marathons and he got me back on the track and I went from a sort of low 14s for 5k mid 29s for 10k down to a 13 and a half or 1325 5k and 27.47 um, 10k runner and that was where I made my first team, was actually in 10, over a 10k track event at the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh in 1986. So he got my speed really to improve, and that, in the end, made me a much better marathon runner. And so who were some of your early in, in, influences or inspirations in uh, in the sport of running? Well, certainly Rob DeCostella. Um, he, uh, he was at the peak of his powers through the 80s. You know, I remember watching him, I was having breakfast here in Ballarat, watching him um, win that magnificent Commonwealth Games uh, marathon in Ed in um, Brisbane in 1982 where he, he caught Juma Kanga and passed him and um, in a pretty, still I think the Australian domestic, the fastest time ran for a marathon on Australian soil about 2.920 or maybe quicker than that, 2.9 something, so fantastic run. Here I was four years later I roomed with him at the Edinburgh Commonwealth Games, so you know he 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 certainly took me under his wing and taught me a lot of things about just how to train, how to uh, treat the media, just how to be a pretty good runner and a pretty good bloke, and as he is, so he was certainly a major influence. And then there are other guys here in Ballarat who around the club that I ran for, Barry Brooks and a lot of other um, Brian McLennan who took me under their wing as well and allowed me to develop. In, and we did a lot of chatting out on runs that really benefited me. So I'd like to discuss a bit about your training during your uh, your career. Can you describe the system that you used? Under... Yes, I probably came from... Pat Clohesse was um, he's sort of the grandfather or the forefather of Australian distance running and uh, he spent time in America and, um, and got involved or, or um, was really influenced by the Arthur Lydiard system and um, came back to Australia and implemented that here with Chris Wardlaw and a few of the runners and Chris Wardlaw had a group of uh, runners that trained all together that were called the pack 
and a young bloke turned up one night as a member of that pack and started sort of running with them and Chris Wardlaw thought, oh, this guy's got potential and Pat Clovis, sort of gave him a bit of direction and um, history would show that bloke turned out to be Rob DeCostella and so, you know, had very good success. So it's more of a, probably more of an endurance-based training system where we don't periodise, we do the same training all year round. So the, in essence, it's doing the one long run on a Sunday morning and then the, the three quality sessions, Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, and another longish run on a Wednesday. The other runs during the week just running around at a pretty casual pace. I think, you know, it's more uh, based on when you're doing quantity, you do quantity at a slow pace, and when you're doing quality, you do fast quality and not, not an enormous amount of it, but just at a high level of quality. And you do it week in, week out, over years and years, and you build up your strength and endurance and and um, you know, race results come off um, a pretty strong endurance base. And how did uh, do you know how Pat Cloessy or your coach Chris Wardlaw ever? How did they arrive at that kind of a system from the Lydiard type system? Because that's obviously a very different description of training than Arthur Lydiard was preaching. Yeah, I think they. I think when um, so Pat experimented. He was a good runner himself, and I think he was experimenting it when he was in the college system in America and he saw how other people um, adapted it and when he came home to Australia he, um, I think the Australian climate and the club system here meant we had races every weekend so you know you'd run either a club race or a, a, a regional race or a state based race most weekends so it kind of adapted from that I think that you know he likes people to race and I still talk to, to Pat um, every a uh, couple of months, so he's still going pretty well up in Queensland. So we talk about you know the things that are at the um, uh, forefront of his training, and that racing is really important. I don't think people race enough now, and, and racing on Saturday, so you still get your your long run on a Sunday. So I think it kind of was was just the way that the club system was based here in Australia, and he adapted the system to fit in with that, and and had good results off it himself and in the training group that he was a member of, and and passed that on to sort of the next couple of generations. It's cer- it certainly still seems to be the uh, sort of the basis of most Australians uh, running training even to this day. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's probably, yeah, it's moved on a little bit. I mean, Nick Badeau and a lot of the training groups here now do a lot more longer tempo runs and they've probably, you know, I think they've picked up the intensity of the training. So where where we would work over a long period of time and try and get people to enjoy their running and have a long-term view of, you know, maybe five or six years. I think there's a more intense training regime now and athletes tend to peak a bit quicker and are definitely running faster and better than we ever did, but they don't seem to have quite as long a career and, you know, they, they get, they get it's pretty intense and I think it's very hard on their bodies to do it over a sustained period of time. Yeah, well, the level of competition, of course, is only getting better throughout the world. As well, that's for sure. 2.8 was sort of 2.7, 2.6, was the benchmark. You know, in our day, the Australian record, you know, Deeks 2.7.51 still stands today, and now they're running 2.3, 2.4, yeah. and if you don't run 2.5, you don't win an international marathon. It's, it's amazing. Really? So, like a lot of runners in your era, you, as you said, you your, your system was kind of based on racing a lot and also at a lot of different distances. Yes. Did you? How did you adjust your training for different distances, or did you at all? Believe it or not, not very much. I, I do tell a story about 
Uh, I did make the Commonwealth Games 10K team. I ran just around 28 and a half at 10K, and that got me in the Australian Commonwealth Games team to go to Edinburgh in 86. And about three months before, Chris rang up and said, oh, look, there's a spot in the men's marathon. Um, do you want to see if I can get you a run in that? It's six days after the 10K. And I said, oh, oh yeah, that sounds OK. You know, what do I need to do? And he said, well, don't worry, we'll just train you for the 10K. So that's your main focus, so just worry about that. And on a Sunday morning, instead of running two hours and six minutes, which we used to run 18 miles at seven-minute miles, so pretty casual in, in the old miles, mileage base times, and he said, just add a couple of miles on, so do two hours 20 and make that 20 miles instead of 18 and that's the only thing you need to do differently. I did that and turned up, ran fifth in the 10k, would you believe in the um, marathon, I won a bronze medal and ran 211.18 on debut, so worked out pretty well. <laughs> Of course, yeah, absolutely. That must have been that must have been quite a shock to uh, both the race distance itself and the fact that you were able to do that well. Yeah, obviously, you know, I I couldn't have in my wildest dreams imagined that I could debut that fast and then you know winning a, a bronze medal at my first time out the distance. So yeah, it was it was amazing how it happened. And I think you know I have obviously had a natural affinity to run marathons, but I think just the background of Chris's endurance training just served me pretty well and I was fast and fit there's no doubt I was fit I mean I'd ran 28 30 you know six days before so I was fast and fit and and I just had to hang in there and because I was running so well in the group I think you know that was a bit of mental incentive for me to keep going I didn't know what I was in for you know those last seven or eight k's they're hard but when when you're running for a silver or bronze medal you know it keeps you going absolutely so um, one of the things you're probably more better known for is the, the quote-unquote Mona Fartlick workout, which is Correct. still done throughout the world by thousands of different runners. How did, uh, how did that workout kind of come to be? Lucas, that is a great uh, story that I tell because I'm actually in Ballarat and Chris Wardlaw lives in Melbourne, which is about 100 kilometers uh, apart. And uh, I, when he said he, he agreed to coach, and I said, oh, yeah, okay, so what do I do? And he said, oh, Tuesday night, do some fartlek and I said oh yeah what sort of fartlek and he said oh you know just anything I don't know and I'm, he's a very sort of um, bit more rough around the edges and not very formulated I'm a very meticulous person I said oh I need a bit more than that and he said oh yeah just some minutes or something you know something adds up to about 20 minutes so we continued the conversation about other matters and I'm sort of scribbling some stuff down on a piece of paper and thought oh yeah um, a couple of minutes and, and said oh yeah and then you know maybe some 30s and Anyway, I sort of writing all this down, and um, after talking about other stuff for about ten minutes, I said, "Oh, how about this?" And he said, um, "I said, oh, you know, two by a minute and a half, four by a minute, four by thirty seconds, four by fifteen, same recovery." He said, "Is that add up to twenty minutes?" I said, "Yep." And he said, "Well, that'll do. Away you go." And I've been doing it ever since. That was, as I say, nineteen eighty-three, and here we are, thirty years later, and I still do it on a Tuesday night. And people do lots of different. Uh, modifications they always apologize to me Lucas they go oh sorry you know we do two by monophatic or we might do 5k tempo run just beforehand to get a bit fatigued and or we don't do the 15s we add a few on for the minutes we add a bit on the front they don't need to apologize I'm delighted that people understand the benefits of it the flexibility of it and the intensity and the benefits they get out of it at the end of the day it's a delight for me to be associated with it and so when would one do that workout? It sounds like you did it pretty much all year round. Is there a particular time where you'd think or you'd say that workout is better than others? 
Yeah, I did it all year round because that's kind of how I worked. Every Tuesday night, I liked the routine. But what it what it definitely is, and I used it most specifically. I would, if I was going to an Olympic marathon Sunday week, so in what would that be? Uh, Eleven days time from from a Tuesday night, it was my last hit out. It was almost like a time trial, and people need to understand that my recoveries. I was running the fastest I've ever run for that 6K session that I do around Lake Wendery here in Ballarat was sub 3 minute Ks. I ran um, 17.18, which is, what's that, 6, or it's about 253-kilometre average. So you can imagine there could not have been much differential between the, the reps and the recovery. So I think I was probably running, you know, 245s for the reps and probably about three minutes for the recovery so we are staying at a very high intensity there's not a lot of recoveries and that's the key to the session so it's almost like a time trial and I would smash that session out wrap myself up in cotton wool and then you know pretty much just jog into the race um, on that following Sunday. Yeah that's that's one thing that does seem to be a constant of the session whatever whatever you know however you chop up the distances is that the recovery is not a jog? It's really kind of as fast as you can go while still maintaining your uh, while still maintaining the speed of the of the fast reps. That that is that is essentially that is it. And and I often would say to people, we can all run you know three minute k's say for the or at that pace for a minute and a half. But what does people find really tiring? I've done it. It's so funny to do it with people who don't really understand the session, and we we. We stop after the 90, first 90 seconds and we sort of keep rolling and these people are stopping and they're kind of going, what are you doing? We're finished, 90 seconds is up. And say, so, yeah, yeah, we've done that. We're now doing a job. And I go, this isn't a job. They're sort of <laughs> they're struggling to keep up. And eventually, you know, then they think, how easy was the first 90? Then they get to the second 90 and they think, oh, this is a bit harder. And then we get into the minutes and because the recoveries are rolling at such a pace, they start getting very fatigued and they go from thinking this is the easiest session we've ever done to getting to the end of it going, my God, I don't know how, I don't know why, but that was a really hard session. So it does catch up with you because of those rolling recoveries. Yeah, that's that sounds like a really tough workout. Seems like something yeah. that a lot of people could really get a lot of benefit out of. Um, and I think the key, and I know I don't want to sort of um, downplay the benefit of that session, but what people, the, the whole philosophy of our training, of Pat Clohessy, Chris Wardlaw and my training is, you need to do enough mileage around that type of session that you're fatigued going into it. So what you do is you teach your body to run off uh, tiredness through other training. So a lot of people will turn up and do that session and they can keep up with me in that session and yet we get to a race a few weeks later and I smash them and they go, how come I can keep up with you in, in the session but you smash me in a race two weeks later? And I say, well, yeah, you're not fatigued. You're not doing 200 takes a week. So I was buffering that fatigue by doing the hard training and then still being able to run at a high intensity in those sessions. That is the key to our philosophy. So my theory in a nutshell, here it is. You've got the, this is the pearls of wisdom from, from Steve Monaghetti. Do enough training to make yourself tired and then do your intense workouts off that at a, at a fast speed. Therein lies the secret of being a good marathon runner. So I'd like to move on uh, a bit. One thing that I've, that I've read about your training, what little I could find on the internet, is um, doing a second a second run in the afternoon after the long run on a Sunday. Uh, yep. First of all, was that true? Yep, and, and I still do it now. That is out of 
probably out of um, pig-headedness or out of um, out of contradictory beliefs to the rest of the world, I still do that second run on a Sunday now. It's the only time I run twice uh, twice a day now. I run every day, but twice on a Sunday because I'm I'm going back on one of my strong theories, and no one in the world seems to do it anymore, but. I used to do a 35k run on a Sunday morning just to get a bit of fatigue in my legs. And I couldn't do 42 because I just felt that was too far and would tire me so much that it, I couldn't cope with the rest of the week's training. So I'd do 35, but I would go out that night and do another 10k so that I would get over 42k. Obviously, I'd get a 45k day done on a Sunday, and I think there was massive benefits in that just to get my body used to running when it was... Um, lacking in glycogen and you know I, I didn't hit the wall very often I think one of the reasons was because I, I did that longer training my body got used to being able to adapt and spare its glycogen and even to to run a bit glycogen depleted it became more efficient at doing that well you just answered my second question which was uh why was that going to be so yep Obviously, you were running a whole. You were running a lot of uh, a lot of volume, as you said, over 200 kilometers. For those of us who talk miles, that's about 125 miles in a week. Um, did you do any kind of non-running training in your career, no. or was that not really the done only, at that point? I did do I did do some non non-running training. It was called sleeping. Ah, I actually factored in. Chris and I would have a Thursday afternoon where we'd um, I'd have an hour sleep factored into my training, but. You know, I was always tired anyway just from doing that amount of training, but I felt by Thursday afternoon, just before my track session that night, I was really starting to struggle. It was probably the point in the week that I was the most tired, so I'd sneak into bed and have a, a rest for an hour just to give myself an extra little bit of chance to recover. So that was actually factored into my training. No That's other cross-training, no. I was, I was hardly ever injured, Lucas, to be honest, over 20 years. So, And when you're running... The amount of miles that I was doing, I was too tired to do anything else. I had little patches where I'd do some weight training, but I found weight training just fatigued my muscles, made me tired for the rest of my running. And I thought, well, you know, I specifically run, so I prefer to, to you know, be fresh and get as much done out of my running rather than compromise that by doing weight training and other cross training. That's pretty fair. So yeah, I'm a very basic man. I've kept it very simple. I don't. Get, I don't enjoy doing it. I enjoy running. I'm really natural. It's something I find quite comfortable and easy to do. I don't like those other things, so I just go and run. Well, fair enough. So, as you were saying, um, you've been running at a pretty high. Le- you ran at a pretty high level for a number of years. Uh, you know, ran at four different Olympics. How do you account for that kind of longevity, especially as you said, with really no major injuries throughout your entire career? Yeah, I think I never, most of my running was done at conversational pace, so seriously, I was running at seven minute miles for most of my training, and out of those 200k weeks, 180 of it was just long, slow distance, and with friends, and just having a chat, so I think I gave my body good opportunity to recover, I wasn't fatiguing it every day, I'd run pretty hard when I'd do the quality, but the rest of the time I was pretty kind to it, and whilst I would get fatigued, I didn't really get... um, you know, I didn't overstress my body, so, you know, my heart rate wasn't getting smashed and my muscles and tendons weren't getting overused. So I think that really helped. Also had, in Ballarat here, we've got really nice forests that undulate, so I get a bit of variety in the ups and downs, and I also run on a lot of dirt surfaces in those forests, and, 
and good bitumen and um, soft bitumen and gravel paths that we have around Lake Wendoree have really benefited me. So softer surfaces, a mixture of surfaces, uh, changing my shoes up. You know, I've been sponsored by Nike for 28 years and I had access to lots of different pairs of runners that I would rotate and I think that, you know, you don't get a wear pattern. It breaks up the stresses on different parts of your body, so that helps. I was probably one of the first people to ever have a physio travel with me. I took my physio to the 89 London Marathon and I took him in preference to my coach and my wife at, at the time because I saw that as a really important preventative measure to make sure my legs are in great shape. So I think I was probably ahead of the game in sports science, having him travel with me and seeing him a couple of times a week when I was um, in my formative years. So just I reckon a combination of those things and they seem little things but you throw them all together and the recipe comes out with a, a pretty good athlete and good result at the end of it and a bit of longevity and, and I'm still running. You know, I ran the half marathon uh, here yesterday and ran 77 minutes having not done much running for a couple of months so I'm probably still in shape to run just over 70 minutes for a half. My body's in pretty good nick after so much running. And is it 50 two years old at this point i'll be i'm 51 now i'll be 52 in september all right well that's a pretty respectable half you know regardless yeah. for a 50 for a 51 year old year old guy yeah that's done the amount of mileage that i think i've i've, I've done over 200,000 k's in my lifetime so I've, I've given my legs and body a pretty good workout so to still be able to bounce up and run that pace i think i'm going pretty well yeah it certainly seems like it so um, the Commonwealth Games are coming up again this summer. What is it that you think makes that ev- that made that event so special for you? Because you obviously oh, want a complete set of medals at it. Yeah, and a bronze in the 10K at the fourth Games as well. So when I went back to the track, I think the in Australian psyche, they're, they're really highly regarded. They're behind the Olympics. They're the, the probably the second most publicised multi-sport event. So... We have lots of, obviously, athletics has their own events and world championships and world relay things and half marathons and cross-country and stuff, but we don't go to multi-events in other um, guises except for the Olympic Games. And Australia's always had a really good result from Commonwealth Games, so lots of people watch it, and because we're so successful, you know, the public are interested. You, if you start winning or getting medals, then the public sit up and take notice. So our record has really um, meant that they're a very high-profile event here in Australia. And also the standards are a lot easier. I would have made it. That first team I made, I ran 28 and a half minutes for 10K, as I say. And, you know, the World Championships and common and Olympic qualifying times were quicker than that. They were on the lower end of 28 minutes. So I may not have made those other teams had I not snuck into that Commonwealth Games team in 86 because of the lower standards. So it's a bit of a breeding ground for athletes. And... You know, I, I was fortunate enough to get my opportunity there and that made a real difference to, to my career and the future that I had been. And so after two, uh, after two previous, you know, um, you know, almost wins, what did it finally feel like to win a gold medal in, uh, in the 94 games in Victoria? It was a long time coming, Lucas, but so I really <laughs> enjoyed it. And I tell people that's the one great thing with the marathon. And I was clearly away. I... I Hit the front at about uh, eight or nine k to go. I think I ran 64 and a half for the second half, so I was, I was going pretty well, and and I could enjoy it. I, I knew I was running on really well, and I I sort of soaked up the atmosphere, and that took the accolades from sort of three or four k out, which was terrific for me to be able to be in that position. So 
I really enjoyed it. And having obviously come through the, the bronze in 86 and the silver in 1990 and then finally achieving the gold sort of gold eight years later, it was a pretty special moment. So I felt like I'd served my apprenticeship and I was in a good place and running on so strongly that I could really enjoy the moment. So not like in the 100 metres, it's over in 10 seconds. You don't quite get to enjoy it like we do in the marathon if you're clearly in front. Your destiny's basically in your own control, which it was in that case. So it was a very special moment for me. So this is a, a question from one of our, uh, one of our listeners. She was. At, she wants to know. Um, so over your career, there were obviously a lot of shifts and changes in in information about running, from fueling during races to foot strike and shoe types, and, any, and a whole lot of other stuff. And these not only did these things seem to change a lot, but they also seemed to contradict each other a lot. Were you influenced at all by these shifts and changes? Um. A little bit early on, because you you know I was I was developing as a marathon runner, and I'd look at what other people were doing. But surprisingly, you know, as I got to sort of the top of the tree, I was just sort of beavering away, kind of looking after my own body here and doing things that suited me best and adapting. You know, like like I had to go to the physio because I had a you know a little niggle, and so I thought, well, he said rather than come after you've got an injury, you know, come beforehand. And so we set up a bit of set up a bit of a preventative method, you know, not doing a lot of cross training. So all of those things just it kind of. I was at a level where people started looking at what I was doing and I was less worried about other people because I was on such a strong, an improved, strong improvement curve, especially over the half marathon, you know, I broke world record to the half marathon. So people started looking at what I was doing and I tell you, it is so much easier when you just look after things that, you know, are in your own backyard and you're not chasing things. If you're looking at other people and what they're doing, you start sort of chopping and changing and one thing I'm finding now with technology and information, there's so much out there that's confusing and people don't tend to stick at one thing for long enough. They want a quick success so they'll, they'll jump and chop and change from one system to another and that's generally probably in life, not just in running. And I think that's to the detriment of, of people because you, know, you need to stick at something to give it an opportunity to work. So I think that allowed me to just settle a bit more, focus on what I was doing well and then just adapt little things around the edges. So I pick up bits of information. I have a chance to experiment with them in a minor way, but because the basis of my training stayed pretty consistent, I got a quick message back whether those little adaptations were working or not. And if they were, I'd implement them. If they weren't, they didn't affect my overall progress. So I think that that's you know one thing that I was fortunate enough. And whilst I didn't, I'm pretty conservative, I was quite adaptive in that way. You know. In, human development I probably um, understood a bit better than a lot of athletes that I was running against. With that kind of a repetitive schedule I imagine you did get to know your own body pretty well and what it could take and what it couldn't take. Yes, indeed. And so as you mentioned you run, you still run you know pretty much every day, uh, twice twice a day, once a week. Um, So what kind of running are you doing? What kind of running or racing are you doing now that you've retired? Yeah, so I go to a lot of events around Australia as an ambassador for events and, and I'll pick and choose what I, I run in and I, I tend to jog in those a bit more. You know, run, you know, I might run a 10K in sort of 35 minutes getting going in the second half but beside all of that sort of public face, I then still run for Ballarat YCW, my club here in, in Ballarat and we go to Victorian races and when I turn up at those events, I run as hard as I possibly can and, you know, I, I would... I'd probably still be in the top 30 in the state 
here in Victoria, which is a pretty strong cross-country running state. So I turn up in my YCW singlet, and the gun goes, and I run hard, and I try to beat as many people as I can and finish as high up as I can. At the end of the day, I know I'm not going to win or I'm not going to run as fast as what I have on those courses and at those events as I did in the past. But I still pretty much know at the end of the race whether I've ran hard and whether I'm happy with my performance. I like challenging myself, and... That keeps me still doing sessions during the week. So, you know, I still run K reps or monofartlek on Tuesday nights and some reps with some younger guys to keep that speed in my legs. And it's really just managing my body now and still try to get 100K a week and do those sessions during the week and train like an elite athlete still. And whilst my performance is slowing, I still find that I'm going pretty well. Yeah, certainly sounds like it. Um, one thing I was going to ask before that I kind of forgot was... Um, Again, about adjusting training, did you adjust it for different um, for different kind of race events, like for for a cross country race or for a track race or a road race, or still not really, just kind of keeping it the same deal? No, it was pretty much the same. I, I might do a little bit more bitumen running if I was leading into a marathon, but generally I would I, I ran on on very similar runs and, and kept it pretty consistent. To be honest, I, I used to find probably an 8k cross-country race is good to lead into a marathon as anything so I, I tended to keep my legs pretty fresh and just attack on the day and the outcome would be I'd be a bit sore and tired after the event but I didn't care if, it, if my result was good I, I didn't worry how I felt after the race I was happy just to get through the race and, and run well so yeah I, you know I didn't really adapt too much I just used that basic training and then I'd freshen up a few days before and cut a bit of mileage out and hopefully just reduce that fatigue that I built up in training and when I was fresh I was ready to go. Well very good. Uh, so what do you think is something that a lot that most runners could add to their training regimen? Oh, I think um, you know I think probably most athletes now train um, at um, too intense a level so I think probably um, you know, enjoying their training. One thing I, I may may have done had I had my life over again, maybe some running, like running in a pool or running in a um, uh, Alter G that they have now or those types of um, technology that we have opportunity to use now just to remove a bit of the load bearing and jarring from our legs. One thing I have found over my time is that an I talk to cyclists, swimmers, other sports people. Running is very, very hard because you get a lot of jarring and shock through your legs and a lot of people find that their body can't cope with that. So I think with the increased amount of mileage, people are doing more than I was doing 200 k's a week and they're doing it at a far more intense level To and that's why I think they've got shorter careers and to just allow them to probably cope with that better, I think maybe some running in an environment that's less um, uh, jarring on their legs would be really valuable. And how about those who aren't, say, trying to, to race fast or try to make national teams, somebody who's just trying to go out and do some races because they enjoy it? Yeah, I think probably um, to run in the forest, don't wear a watch and just go for a run and get back in contact with nature and just realize the reason that you run is because you get an enormous sense of enjoyment connecting with the environment 
and I tell you that will make you appreciate your running a lot more and whilst we all get to a race and we look at our watch and we're focused on, we get nervous beforehand, we're worried how it's going to go, whether we're going to beat this person or that. At the end of the day, running is a very pure sport. The endorphin release and the benefits you get out of the exercise we call running is life-changing and to get back in con contact with that by running out in the forest in a safe environment for females but just running not dictated by the watch but just dictated by your own sense of well-being and your feelings is a really um, something I think we underestimate and I really encourage people to do. One of my other recent interviews was uh, Lisa Rainsberger, the uh, American marathoner, and that was one thing that she said was uh, incorporate some runs where you just throw the watch aside because people can get can get too much objective data and it makes them it makes them really obsess over things that don't need to be obsessed over. Yeah, and again, we've spoke about already, Lucas, and Lisa's on to it, that we, we, we know our bodies pretty well because we put it under pressure and we learn a lot about it. If you let other technology and other people do that for you, then you don't get in contact with your body. You don't understand it, how, how it operates as well. So I think that's a benefit we get in, you know, we learn a lot about our body, so don't rely a lot on other people and technology all the time. If you, if you, I think it's wise to just forget it for a little while and enjoy your running. So you've done some coaching since you retired, is that right? Yeah, yeah, bits and pieces, yeah. And I've got a website now, a Trained by Champs website that's online coaching. Generally, it's, yeah, it's just be by running with lots of people who, you know, I think I've got a lot of information through anecdotal experience that people like to chat to me about, and that's obviously been um, translated into some coaching, yeah. And so how do you go about constructing a training program for somebody? Oh, it certainly is. The first thing I do is I meet with them and try and clarify what their goals are and what they want to achieve out of their running, and um, then we work from there. And I often work back from saying, well, do you, you know, have a particular race that you want to do? And, and I try and then tailor a program to suit their needs. In fact, I would often, you know, everyone wants to run a marathon nowadays, which is great, but I, I then probably say, well, maybe start with a half or, you know, what's the longest event you've done? Maybe work out the half, see if you like that, and, you know, we'll, we'll venture out to the marathon then. And believe it or not, then I really try to get them to um, work on their speed and feel a bit more like they're, um, you know, like an elite athlete. If they're not, if they're just recreational runners, then I try to get them as fast as they can over shorter distance so they get a lot of satisfaction out of running all types of events, different terrains, not just marathon running. So it's a bit of an assessment of, what they want, what their personality is like, and then it's combining with that in a... I, I tend to do it in a very personal way, so it's not not just set and forget, it's a bit more interaction over coffee or a chat over the phone to see how they're going with the training, um, more emotionally and mentally, as, as well as the physical program that I set. It's not hearing a lot of numbers here. It sounds like your your coaching philosophy is very much like your running philosophy of just it's a very simple. It's a simple sport when you break it down, and uh, and more about just enjoying it and learning to feel your body rather than attaching it to objective data. Yeah, which would be great. And and you know, even my coach, my Chris Wardlaw's great, great um, coaching quote was, he became such a successful coach that he made himself superfluous, which you know is a contradiction in terms, isn't it? But it was completely correct, you know. And, and I was doing my training from here in Ballarat and learned a lot about 
my body and training and he was really just a sounding board in the end and, and I've been able to pass that on to the athletes that I come in contact with and I think there's a lot of life lessons that you can get out of running and the enjoyment of running and whilst I can pass those life lessons on, if people get to the stage where they're experiencing those life lessons themselves then that's a very successful outcome for, for everybody. Something else I've heard from uh, a couple of successful coaches is uh, exactly get them get if you can get your athletes to the point where they where they don't need the watch, then you're really getting somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is one thing I've asked a few different people. Um, having been to a lot of a lot of races around the world and and a lot of different events. Um, how do you think we can turn more people who run into more into people who are, say, fans of the sport of running? Yeah, it's a million-dollar question, isn't it? We've, we've got a real boom here in Australia for recreational running and, and fun runs, and yet it's not really translating into um, elite performance, it'd be fair to say, and, and spectators of athletic events. And yeah, So it's, it's a difficult one. You know, I think... Um, I think we probably, you know, again, a lot of the runs are on Sunday mornings and it's when, you know, so we, we've got to be a bit flexible. I would say to a lot of recreational runners, you can't race on a Sunday morning, but unfortunately reality says that traffic and, and events are on Sunday morning. So I'm now adapting, okay, we'll do your long run, you know, on Monday or midweek or on Saturday and still go, you know, and cross-train because people don't want to run because they find it a bit time-consuming or it doesn't suit their lifestyle, so they go to a gym and do different sessions. So... I think we need to be a lot more flexible on allowing people to um, fit in with their lifestyles and allow our sport to accommodate that. So, you know, don't don't be as conservative and as paranoid about um, our meets and you have to get there and over-officialise events, make them a bit more relaxed so people realise what a great sport it is, but they can't realise it if they're not seeing it or participating in it. So. We really need to make it spectator-friendly and user-friendly, and that probably needs some adaption to a lot of track meets and the way we've run events historically. Yeah, it's in, as you said, it's uh, there's a lot as like you were saying, there's a lot of uh, a lot of big, you know, fun runs and races in Australia, and it's definitely the case in the U.S. I mean, everywhere you look, there's a there's another road race that's posting uh, that's posting record finishers every year, and yet if you asked. If you asked most of the people in those races who somebody like, say, Steve Monaghetti is, everybody would give you a blank face. Yeah. And yeah, it does. That's kind of been the general consensus: is got to do something to make it a little more user friendly and where it uh, adapts to more people's schedules. It's amazing. I mean, people know my name here in Australia because of the events I go to as an ambassador now, and that I'm still running in. So there's been that con- continuity in my name, and yet. You know, if if I had retired and stopped running and just got a normal job after the Sydney Olympics, no one would know me. So it is there is certainly an awareness out there in the recreational market that we need to tap into and how we, we translate that. You know, why, why don't we have running meets or why don't we have clinics on at the end of events? Why wouldn't Athletics Australia or Athletics you know, US... Um, have events on at those events, so embrace it rather than say, oh no, we're the kings and I want to come and be a part of our event, I don't think it's like that, it's the other way around, they've got the captive audience and we need to tap into that. Absolutely. So before I let you go, I just want to ask uh, like a quick series of five questions. Mm-hmm. So what was your pre-race meal? 
couple of pieces of toast and a cup of tea two hours before an event. Two hours out, that's a little closer than others pe- than other people. Mm-hmm. So, and then what was your favorite workout? Or have we already talked about it? Uh, yeah, my, my, my fart leg was always the, the uh, most satisfying session for me, for sure. And what was your favorite race event to run? That might, that might be hard. Yeah, probably the Great North Run. Just, I mean, I, I think it was the one that got me sort of realizing I could be a world-class athlete, and you know, I probably revolutionised the interest into half marathon again. There were a couple of guys running good halves at the time, and we sort of had a few challenges going. So half marathons weren't that trendy or accepted back in 1990. So that was a very important race for me personally, and I think it just kick-started a bit of the half marathon craze around the world and what did you do for fun during your elite career <laughs> or wow. did you god we um well as, a, as an athlete traveling around a lot you know we used to play a lot of cards and, hmm. and drink a lot of coffee and and you know have a bit of fun at events because you've got a bit of time to kill so i was mainly playing old card games and and hanging around um practical joking a few of our teammates that was always plenty of fun along the way and uh finally what race would you have loved to run that you never got a chance to uh new york marathon no doubt about that and it's you know the world's most famous or biggest marathon and most popular now i never quite got there so i ran boston and atlanta at the olympics in 96 but never got to new york so it's still on the bucket list lucas well Let's hope that some, let's hope uh, Mary Wittenberg or somebody out there is uh, you know hears this and maybe 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 uh, extends an invitation at some point. Yeah, it'd be terrific. So it'll <laughs> happen, I'm sure. Just a matter of fitting it into my schedule and you know doing it in the right frame of mind. Right. Well, Steve, thanks very much for your time today. Um, we'd like to wish you the best of luck in everything that you're doing in the future. And uh, again, thanks for being on the show. No problem. Thanks for the intelligent questions and promoting. Distance running, we all love, Lucas. Thanks, mate. You're welcome. Cheers. Thank you. Have a good day. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a short review on our iTunes page to let us know what you think of our podcasts and how we can make them better for you. Also, if you have a question about this episode or any other, please don't hesitate to ask. You can leave a comment on the webpage or leave us a voicemail at 617-356-7969. We'll do our best to answer as many of these questions as we can, either in a future episode or in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. I'm your host, Lucas Felden, and thanks for listening.